Hi, everyone, and welcome to Val Cafe. My name is Brian Hostler, founder of Strong Roots Consulting based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host. Hi, everyone. I'm Carolyn Kamen, an independent evaluation consultant working out of Vancouver, B.C., coming to you from unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations territory. This podcast is an informal chat on evaluation topics, the kind you might overhear at your favorite coffee shop, if your favorite coffee shop were frequented by evaluators. This podcast is for everyone, expert or novice, longtime practitioner, or just starting in the field. Even if you don't identify as an evaluator, as long as you have an, an interest in evaluation, this podcast is for you. Welcome again to our Eval Cafe podcast, everyone. And today we are talking with Andy Johnson. Uh, Andy is an evaluator who is based in Minneapolis in Minnesota, where he works in arts-based evaluation and applied neuroaesthetics. Andy uses his background in the arts to transform what we find valuable, beautiful, and memorable into data useful for decision-making. He brings more than 30 years of experience in arts, administration, and activism to his work, having worked as a musician, a stage manager, and a director. He's also a writer, publishing his first novel in 2017, and he's currently working on a short story collection. And he's also one of the co-founders of Creative Evaluation and Engagement, along with his wife, Nora Murphy Johnson, who you might remember from recently being on our podcast, um, talking about evaluating from the heart. Welcome to Eval Cafe, Andy. Thank you. Good to be here. So one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on the podcast is that we were talking to Nora. Well, first of all, we're really interested in um, creative evaluation and engagement. Uh, And also she was telling us about your theater and arts background and how that comes into your evaluation practice. And that just sounded like an amazing thing to have a conversation about. Cool. Yeah. Love talking about this stuff. So can you tell us um, what's your evaluation story? How did you end up in this work? Well, uh, my first exposure to evaluation was uh, between about 2009 and 2011. I was an aid worker in Liberia. It was about five years after their their second civil war had ended. And I was a subcontractor. Essentially, our mission was to help uh, the Liberian people put their education system back together. So I worked on a variety of initiatives, uh, literacy, um, ending gender-based uh, violence through education, uh, HIV ed- uh, education. Um, I also did some direct teaching at a place called Cuttington University, um, and uh, I was a national dist- uh, national distributor for Books for Africa and a, a couple other things. Um, as part of my work there, I had to uh, do the measurement and evaluation uh, regime for USAID. And it was very confining. It uh, all came down to a set of numbers on a spreadsheet. Uh, We weren't allowed to make any judgments about the quality of the work we did or the impact of the work. It was just, you know, how many people did you speak to? How many people did you reach? Were they the kind of people that they wanted us to talk to, then they counted. If they weren't, you know, if there were homeless kids in the street, you know, that wasn't our mission, so that didn't count, that sort of thing. So uh, a couple years later, I was back in the States, and Nora started talking to me uh, about evaluation, and she, uh, 
you know, we would talk about different things and she would say, oh, you think like an evaluator, you'd be a great evaluator. And after my experience in Liberia, I said, no, 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 I've seen this before. I, it's, it, for me, evaluation was just a matter of putting people in these little boxes. And I wasn't interested in that. Um, but eventually she got me to help uh, a team at Terra Luna edit a report. And as I was editing, which became some writing, which became some researching, I ran across a term called arts-based research. Um, and arts-based research is using the methodologies of the arts to gather, analyze, and report data for generalized uh, research use. And I thought, well, if you can do that in research for a general purpose, I should be able to do it in evaluation in a context-specific type of usage. So I I started saying, well, I can do this thing called arts-based evaluation, and I started developing it from there. Uh, At the time, there were a handful of other people doing these sorts of things and some techniques that emerged out of qualitative research and some that emerged out of the arts, like theater of the oppressed and and a few others. Uh, But, uh, you know, at first I was pretty much just making it up as I went. Could you give us just a bit of an overview or just kind of definition of of what you mean by arts-based evaluation? Sure. Arts-based evaluation gathers analyzes and reports data using the methodologies of the arts. So for example, for one project, we took in uh, a bunch of qualitative interviews from Mm -hmm. teachers, but then hired spoken word poets to report the data as spoken word poetry. Um, So I worked with them for about three months to help them understand, help the poets understand the data and help them develop uh, poetry that reflected what they were seeing. When they performed these poems, you know, I didn't know what to expect. We had never done anything quite like this before. Um, We were, you know, the poets came and performed their poetry based on this data to the teachers who had given us the data in the first place. And suddenly people are standing up and applauding. People are crying. Uh, people are, are hugging each other. And I realized we had created this deep emotional engagement with data, which is something that just hadn't happened in the project uh, before that. After that, we worked with a smaller set of teachers from the same event, and they developed their own poems based on their data. Yeah. Um, And we started seeing like this, this very deep and very special emotional engagement with data. And this emotional engagement then led to changes in behavior, which is what uh, the program wanted in the first place. So it's uh, it, for me, arts-based evaluation is a way of engaging participants and users and organizations and foundations and all sorts of people on a very deep personal, emotional level with the data that we're asking them to use to make decisions about their lives. Um, It's the times that we have done it, it has been incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. No, it definitely sounds like it. And uh, I think that um, 
you know, in evaluation, we, we, our hope is as evaluators that uh, the processes we engage in, the, the work we do with clients, like actually leads to, uh, it's not just demonstrating change or demonstrating what's happening or, or showing, you know, where there's areas for improvement, but actually leads to some kind of uh, meaningful change. But uh, right. I think too often we just like focus on that cognitive and rational and, you know, like the very kind of, you know, we give them the information, then they'll know what to, they'll take it away. They'll do something with it. And we don't think about like that, you know, that can our, can our data provoke an emotional response? Can it be part of, uh, like, can people engage with it in that way? Right. And, you know, for me, and, and, you know, I started training in the arts when I was about six or seven. Mm -hmm. And so my whole framework is that engaging the emotions is what gets people to change what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It gets, it motivates people to act or to stop doing something harmful or to make some change in what they're doing. And so this purely cognitive approach, it just doesn't follow what I know about how we as humans exist in the world. Mm -hmm. We're not purely cognitive. We're not, you know, Vulcans off Star Trek or something. Right. We, you know, we, we have emotions and, and often, you know, if we're looking at a program or an organization where things are perhaps not going well, things are, you know, outcomes aren't happening or processes are breaking down or something like that. It, there's often an emotional reason for that. Mm -hmm. And the arts can be a good way of uncovering that, especially when the participant may not have the words for it yet, may not want to admit that in such a direct way as answering a direct question, um, you know, in times like that. Mm -hmm. And then that speaks to another thing too about uh, um, the the kind of traditional reporting, whether it's 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 uh, verbally or with um, uh, with right. graphs and numbers and all that. I mean, that's a certain subset of the population can engage with that. I think uh, Carolyn and myself, for sure, uh, you know, we can geek out about charts and numbers and and all that kind of stuff. But then for some for some people, that is a, that's alienating. That's going to be not the best way to engage. Whereas an art based approach could be. Um, a good way to do that. Right. Right. I mean, it, those sorts of reports call out the question of who the report is actually for. Mm -hmm. You know, if the report is for, say, wealthy people who are highly educated, but it's a report about people in a community where they may not be wealthy, they may not have access to higher education, they may not have a lot of different things. If we're writing a report that's not intended for the people that gave us the data, I have to question what evaluation is doing. If they cannot make decisions based on our reports, I feel in some way that we failed. And so when I make a report, I want it to work for the people whose lives are most impacted by, uh, by the data gathering and by the analysis and all of that that we've done. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to um, work on a project where theater was part of the evaluation reporting process. Um, and actually, the, at the moment where I came into the process was they had realized they, they, had, they presented their findings, performed them uh, a mm -hmm. few times, and they realized, okay, we can't keep performing it. What, what's, an, what's the next step for this? And they ended up creating a comic book out of it. Okay. Which was... Um, a, and also a fascinating process to get to be part of um, 
because they not only used theater and art as the vehicle for reporting, it was also a co-created process. Good, good. So the, 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 the script was co-written with the people who had provided the data. The comic book was co-written and co-drawn with right. the people who had created the data and had been part of the performing. Um, and one of the things, so one of the opportunities I got to, actually that, that Andy is why I had reached out to you in the first place. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I started that. to connect a few, yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, because I, I was looking into arts-based research, uh, arts-based evaluation, theater coming up and, and yeah, the, the, the literature in that area is not huge. It is um, not. I, I'm happy to know that there's a, I'm a, the work that I was a part of, um, there is a journal article about it that's been submitted to, you know, I'm actually forgetting. I think it's uh, the Canadian Journal of Program Evaluation, CJP. I, I'd have to double okay. check that. It, it, I don't okay. know when it's coming out, but I, I do know that there has been something submitted. There's been a few rounds of edits, so hopefully that will help grow the area a little bit. But right. one of the things that we noticed or, or learned from reflecting on that process, sort of evaluating the evaluation um, process and the reporting process was along with embodiment uh, mm -hmm. that, that sort of, yeah, being able to um, really experience and feel the results. There was something in, in theater in particular about the, um, the ephemeralness of it. The yes. in the momentness of the experience, which in, in yes. some ways actually could stimulate more action because you can see the play once and then that's it. That's it. It's not like a report right. that you can sit there forever that, oh yeah, I'll get, I'll get to that at some point. It's a moment, it's an experience, right. and then you have to right. act on it or not. Um, and that was such a powerful takeaway for me personally to think like, right, maybe sometimes impermanence is very, very powerful in stimulating action when we think about how these uh, results and findings and, re and reports in their various forms get used. Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the wonderful things about theater is that in some ways it replicates our human experience, it, it, I think, in some ways more closely than most other art forms, because it is impermanent. You know, if once the play, once you've seen a theatrical performance and it ends, you can never see that exact performance again. Even if you come back the very next night, it's going to be slightly different. And it's like what we experience with our families, with our friends in the workplace, like, you know, having conversations and things that happen. It's always in the moment. And we have to make decisions based on just where we are now. So, yeah, theater can have oh such a such a profound effect on people. I love it. Oh, you, when you said that, that also. So I've been thinking a lot lately about um uh, complexity um, mm -hmm. in relation to evaluation and how a lot of our like traditional training as evaluators does not prepare us well for complexity um, right. and because it, it generally trains us to expect and prepare for things that are going to be predictable and repeatable and right. sort of very linear and we'll be able to break it down into very specific cause and effect change that we can then you know know and replicate um, and it strikes me when I'm thinking about like how how do we as evaluators enhance our sort of complexity uh, skills and competencies and theater and um, I think all theater, but like particularly the improvisational elements of theater mm -hmm. um, or would be so relevant to that. And I'm thinking about, I have the teeny, eeny, 
tiniest bit of like very amateur community theater background. <laughs> I'm trying to very, very much qualify that. And I'm, I'm, I enjoy, I enjoy, I love theater. I, I love acting. I love prop making. I love everything about theater and everything that goes into it, but I'm not good at it. Um, but I do draw on those bits of experience and skill set um, so much as I move into more complex forms of evaluation. I've noticed that. Well, one thing I tell everyone when I do arts-based work with them is that you don't have to be any good at it. Like the, the work of this is harvesting these techniques for the projects or the organizations and finding ways that arts can serve people in their daily lives, not necessarily turning everybody into an artist. Um, but as you know, with theater, I think sort of two things when it comes to complexity, one sort of in general for all of the arts, um, if you're trained as an evaluator, you probably came out of some sort of university system most likely with a master's degree or a PhD. The PhD especially, I think, trains people to seek answers. You know, there is some sort of definitive, clear, as you say, some hopefully some sort of cause and effect, or at least a very tight correlation um, that explains the problem. I don't have a PhD. I have a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. And I would say for most people who are formally or informally educated in the arts, we're taught to embrace the complexity and the uncertainty. We're taught how to hold on to an idea and let it percolate for years if we need to, maybe our entire lives, and try out multiple different things until something feels right. And we're also taught how to hold multiple truths at the same time, um, because art can art is a kind of container that can hold that. Um, to give you an example for uh, the book you mentioned, uh, my first novel, uh, The Through, I had the idea of that book, the, the core idea of that book, I held on to that for about four years while I was writing it, and I had to start the novel from scratch twice before I finally got to uh, the final version. So I threw out characters, plot lines, change of setting, everything possible you can think about changing um, in a novel got brought in and thrown out and all sorts of stuff. Um, but in the end, because of the way that I was sort of trained and brought up in the arts, that was okay. I didn't consider all of those attempts of failure or, or some indication that I wasn't finding the answer or I w didn't know what I was doing or something like that. So the arts helps me sort of understand and, and hold complexity in that way. Um, and then the last thing I would say specifically for theater, um, and this gets me to, uh, you know, some of the talk I've heard. So a question I get a lot is what's the difference between arts-based evaluation and design thinking? Um, and one area where I'd say they differ is the idea of the prototype. In design thinking, uh, you prototype your solution. That is, you come up with a solution, you get something that's pretty close to what you're going to do, and then you try that out a little bit. You might, you might try out pieces or something like that. 
Um, but the prototype is usually pretty close to your final, your final answer. In theater, we don't have prototypes. We have rehearsals. And the rehearsal process doesn't get us to a particular answer, like the idea that you're going to rehearse and then perform the show in exactly that way every single time is not what we go for in theater. Instead, we're trying to recreate an experience. And we want it to feel fresh. We want it to feel new. We want it to feel in the moment, like you were saying before, like that ephemerality. You know, we want to create that for audiences over and over again. And so when I think about, say, a teacher in a classroom or a youth worker dealing with uh, people under 18 who are experiencing homelessness, and I think about what they're trying to do, it's not a prototype process. They're trying to recreate an experience of being cared for, about being heard, about being understood, about having their concerns taken seriously. And so when I think about how in theater, we train actors and technicians to recreate that process over and over again. I think the rehearsal process, again, is that space where we learn to embrace complexity and prepare for unexpected events. That is such a fascinating comparison. And it immediately has me thinking about um, both, yeah, both how we create um, interventions and also how we evaluate them and whether we are looking to, yeah, refine something into a specific model or a rule versus mm-hmm. moving toward uh, principles that will guide us in right. creating the kinds of experiences we want to create, but adapting them to the situations and the people as they show up. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say one of the things that I, uh, have really taken away from my own experiences um, acting on stage or, or performing in any capacity, whether that's acting or, or uh, facilitating or public speaking, is how much of a difference your audience makes, um, the energy in the room. It's not just that the actors show up different every night or, or things run a little different every night. If the audience is different, the, the performance is different. Yeah, absolutely. And if... You know, if you've ever been to uh, an improv comedy club or have worked in improv comedy where the audience is actually throwing out ideas that the actors have to then take on, even if you have the same group of actors and you supplied audience members with the same set of prompts, you'd still get a different performance. Like it's not... It's not something where the actors can just repeat the same thing over and over. It has to be created, co-created in the moment. And I think that extends to a lot of other systems outside of the arts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what you mentioned earlier that when you first looked into this work you were there was some research you looked at uh, the arts-based research and there wasn't a lot of people talking about arts-based evaluation has that changed are you seeing any shifts uh is there more openness well i think one at first i didn't know where to look um so i have found more uh but i have when I tell people about what I do, 
you're usually like, oh, that's great, that's awesome, and so on. But uh, there still aren't that many people, I think, who call themselves arts-based evaluators. Uh, even at AEA, I meet lots of evaluators who work in the arts, who work primarily for arts-based clients, uh, arts organizations, and so on. Um, but even most of them use more traditional quantitative and qualitative techniques. Um, sometimes I find people who use a particular technique, photo voice is very popular. Um, mm -hmm. uh, verbatim theater is also pretty popular, although there was some controversy with that last year at AEA. Um, but I, it's rare to meet someone who works primarily in arts-based evaluation mm. still. One of the things I notice, I, I notice about this about evaluation in general, we are very um, methods oriented and we tend to want to work with sort of es clear established tools. Like I think one of the reasons photo voice is so popular is because it's, it's present. It, it, there's sort of like a, it's a defined thing sure. that is like, oh yeah, I can, I can read up on that and I can cite mm -hmm. that and I can see how other people have done it and I can go and, and do it my way. But, uh, like my, my experience with um, with photo voice um, and, and also hearing how other people have done it is that it doesn't actually turn out the same way every time. You you absolutely have to adapt it to your context. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I wonder though if one of the inhibitions mm -hmm. is around again that sort of discomfort with complexity and and innovation and improvisation of maybe you don't have a set arts based method that you use, but there's an arts based methodology or an arts based orientation that you can go in and develop a method that suits that situation. I don't know that that's something that evaluators, I don't know if I feel always confident doing that. Right, and for, for me, coming out of a, say out of a music and theater background, you know, I've still got that sort of uh, high school, college attitude of, well, if it's not there, just build the thing, you know? If you wanna, if you wanna see a play, write it, find a theater, get some actors, make it happen. And so in evaluation spaces, uh, you know, if I have a sense that we are not collecting all of the data that we need to understand the problem that we're trying to understand, then instead of trying to bend existing methodologies to a newer purpose or a different purpose, I ask myself, well, what is the best way to capture uh, whatever it is we're trying to capture? Uh, one uh, sort of analogy I use a lot is that evaluation in some ways is, is it's like trying to measure a river, you know, with a tape measure, <laughs> you know, you know, like, so tape measure, great tool. It's standardized. It's cheap. It doesn't take a lot of education to use. And if you want to know length or height or width, it's great. But if your question is more complex than that, if your question is how does the water taste or how healthy is this river or if there's been a spill upstream and you're trying to craft a message to people that live 100 miles away saying you can't fish here for the next five years – even though your people have occupied this land for hundreds or thousands of years, the tape measure is no longer the tool I need. I need something different. 
and again, that does not take away from the value of what of the data I get from a tape measure. It's just not the same. It's not the right tool anymore. Mm-hmm. And just to pick up what you're saying there, and Carolyn, what you were saying before that, I think as evaluators, we're often coming from a social science background. So I think we're, we often talk about, you know, we need to have use have a variety of tools. We need to have, you know, choose the right tool for the right job. But we're working from a limited tool set, I think, all the time. And I think for whatever reason, whether it's that complexity piece, whether that's just a discomfort or just not knowing how to what these other tools or approaches look like, we 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 keep ourselves within that kind of social science post-positivist, you know, that there's a, a truth out there kind of approach, like, you know, that there's something we can go out and measure whether it's a, with a, um, a tool, with a, a tape measure or mass spectrometer or whatever else we want to toss into this analogy. But we, we don't even, I think very few of us, I shouldn't say all evaluators, but I think very few of us have that, you know, comfort with kind of going outside of our, our toolkit that we currently have. You know what I found that's funny is... Mm-hmm. When I'm not doing evaluation work, I find it much easier to do. I've noticed that with as I've moved into more facilitating, I feel very comfortable MacGyvering my way through facilitation scenarios. Um, and then I've noticed when I have to go back and do like an online survey, suddenly I'm back in that that mindset. Um, I think there mm-hmm. is a mindset around it uh, as well that that can be inhibiting. So I'm having to like go and, and sure. rethink myself as an evaluator and try to come into those spaces not thinking of myself as an evaluator maybe i come in and think of myself as a performer and see what that unlocks Mm -hmm. because it's not just about we need all these more tools i think there's this tendency of evaluators to think oh just one more tool that that's the one that'll that'll (laughs) the swiss army knife of all and it's more that it's more that macgyvering Mm -hmm. ability of just like well what is here that we can work with let's work with that yeah right and I, I do want to say that we at Terra Luna, we never, uh, or at Creative Evaluation and Engagement, we never use arts-based methods on their own, except during facilitation. Um, but when it comes to evaluation, we always go with, uh, really with an approach that says, what is going to help the people who are most affected by this work make decisions about what to do next? If that's quantitative work great if it's qualitative great if it's arts-based great if it's uh community-based evaluation methods great if it's some combination of all the above that's fine too you know but we we try to avoid getting stuck in some paradigm or some sort of philosophical argument about like which methodology is best and try to say which methodologies are going to be best for this particular community or this particular client. So if we have two guiding stars that are coming out of this, it's sort of like, why are we doing this and what do we have to do it with? Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I do that's probably different even from other arts-based evaluators, wherever you are, I hope you're listening. Um, is I tend to think through organizations and programs as if they were works of art and then ask myself if they were a work of art, what do I know about that art or that form of art that I can apply then to uh, the organization? So for example, 
Uh, recently, I did a facilitation with an organization that wants to support African-American people in the publishing industry in Minnesota. And they gave us a business plan. And what they were hoping for is that we could help them find some core values and strategic guiding principles out of this. Um, I looked at the, at the business plan and it was very, it was very linear. It was very business-like. And I started thinking, okay, if, this was itself a book or a narrative. What kind of narrative would it be? And I asked myself, like, would it actually be a novel? Would it be something where you start on page one, go to page two, and keep proceeding in this fashion until the end and try to like master the narrative in that kind of way? And I realized that it probably wouldn't be, that there are other ways that uh, African-Americans hold narrative, and that could be a story quilt, it could be uh, a cakewalk or a ring shout or a story quilt or any number of things. And so when I went in and worked with them, first I took them through different parts of the narrative. So I said, your con if your conclusion is the change you want to see in the world after all of this is done, what is that? Your plot are the things you're going to do, different points of action. Uh, your characters are the types of people you need to engage in this work, and so on. And then at the end, I said, given all of the things you surfaced, are you really still this linear novel, or are you something else? And from that, they started developing core values and guiding principles that actually help them engage their own work and help guide them through uh, sort of the easy questions and the difficult questions and all of that. Um, so it, I guess, yeah, that's just another example of, of how I use the arts to embrace complexity and, and also not fall into some of these evaluation, uh, I don't want to say traps, but evaluation traps uh, that I've seen other people fall into where you try to replicate uh, the same thing over and over again. I'm comfortable calling them traps. They feel like traps when you're in them. Yeah. I, and yeah. <laughs> what I'm hearing is also, you know, when we talk about working with what you have, that's also, that's both like what, what is present and abundant within the program context. It's also what's present and abundant within ourselves as evaluators. What, right. what do we bring right. to the space that may not be, I mean, it, it's our evaluation training, but it's it's all of us. It's, it's the things that we know, the things that, that are, are part of who we are. And I noticed that there are a lot of evaluators who have arts influences in their in their lives. That you know, musical, yes. painting, sculpting, acting. You know, we're we're three dimensional people. Most of us. <laughs> most of us. Most of us. I think. Uh, <laughs> I'm always I, I always hedge just in case I, I don't I don't have yeah, speakers yeah. on this so I can't <laughs> yeah. say with definite certainty yes a, yes a fair a fair good number of us um, yes what kind of advice do you have Andy for you know our listeners who might be thinking I I want to do this kind of work but I'm not sure how to get started you know how do how do I do this bring this sort of part of myself into the work that I do. A couple things. One, I would say, you know, think of yourself as a whole person. 
and bring all of yourself into all of your spaces. So don't think that you are a knitter at home and then an evaluator at work, but that you are a knitter at work and at home and an evaluator at work and at home, or maybe not home if you don't like evaluation, but, um, (laughs) but bring that whole self to the work. So if, uh, so my daughter is a knitter um, and, you know, and she talks about patterning and construction and sort of pulling things together, pulling threads together. And I hear that kind of talk and evaluation all the time, but, if I were to compare the number of knitters at any evaluation conference, which I'm going to make up a statistic, 50%, um, and I compared that to the number of people that use the language or the ideas of knitting in their evaluation, I would bet it, the, it would be a much lower number. You know, and there's, there's no reason why you have to sort of leave part of yourself at the door when you go to work. So that would be my first advice. Um, Second, I would say start looking at work people have done. Uh, It can be difficult, more difficult to find evaluation because so many of us are work for hire. Um, So we can't always publish our results. Sometimes we can publish our methods. I'm working on that and hopefully some other people are as well. Uh, But there are a couple of pretty good books on arts-based research that can uh, help a new person get going. You might look into Research Design by Patricia Levy. Um, She's got a couple other books out that are really pretty good. Um, And then uh, there are any number of articles out on the internet or, you know, if you have institutional access through your school, that can help you get started. But what I have found is that I've had to look up for almost every project, I've had to research all of the methods from almost from scratch. There is just not a central location where everything about arts-based evaluation has been gathered in some way. We're trying to make something like that with creative evaluation and engagement, but we are not there yet. Well, we'll definitely start um, whatever resources we can gather. We'll include in the show notes for this episode. So, um, yeah, that'll be a great start. Um, just uh, one question, maybe hopefully not too specific, but um, when you start working or uh, bringing some of these arts approaches in with clients, uh, with org- people from organizations, and I'm thinking back to earlier in this episode when Carolyn, you were saying that you know you you have very little experience in this area, and you and you don't feel like you have a, a strong grounding in it um i've got i have to imagine that what do you say growing experience growing experience there that's that's a better way of putting it i've got a feeling that you know if you try to bring in arts or music or creativity when you're say facilitating uh, a session some people are going to be like oh no i'm not an artist oh no i'm not uh, an actor and how do you overcome that that resistance how do you address it oh sure Um, well, one, I tell them it doesn't have to be any good. (laughs) I tell them they don't have to do it. You know, we're all adults. I can't make them do it. Um, but I also try to make it fun and I try to make it engaging. Um, and sometimes, you know, I get challenged on the methods and people will say, well, how does this lead to this particular outcome? Or how does this further our work? Or are we just wasting time here? And, you know, 
playing with arts and crafts? I'm sure, I get those questions all the time. To that, I say, you know, people don't have to engage, uh, nor do they have to answer surveys. Now, if I'm a qualitative researcher and somebody doesn't feel like engaging, I can say, oh, well, it's survey fatigue or it's, you know, it's, I can find a, some awesome jargon to explain why they didn't want to do it. But um, in arts-based evaluation, we don't have that jargon yet. Uh, but mainly I would just say, you know, for the participants, it doesn't have to be good art. In fact, it can be bad uh, especially when I ask people to write poetry, I tell them to throw out everything they learned uh, in school about poetry, including that they hate it, uh, <laughs> and, and just give it a shot. And usually I've had very few people actually who just flat out refuse to engage with it on some level. Mm. One thing I've learned is um, having the, the good consent-based practices um, of uh, creating spaces where people can choose how much they want to step in. Um, so I will mm-hmm. sometimes tell people mm-hmm. if I'm going to get them to draw as part of an, an exercise that there's an option for them to not show the drawing. They can describe it if they want to. And that way, sure. you know, mm-hmm. it's not, and they know ahead of time, like I'll, you'll have choice over how much of this you share and how you share it. And also not, right. not right. asking people to do something I'm not willing to do myself either at the same time or as an example, like just showing yep. like this is, this is what it can look like. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And one thing that has worked for me in the past, if we've wanted something that's maybe say more complex as a final product, uh, I've worked with professional artists. So I would be there facilitating the evaluation part, but they would facilitate the art and most artists have taught classes like this to uh, beginners, and they're pretty good at getting people to engage with their art form. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, the, in the case I'm thinking about, we worked with some parents and educators at a school to create a kinetic sculpture. Um, I brought in a kinetic sculptor, and he worked with them very carefully, and their report about uh, their experience at the school uh, became a kinetic sculpture that he created based on what they told them and what they did with it. Um, and it was a, it was a wonderful experience and it really, it was a, a step I think in transforming that school. Sorry. Uh, what exactly is a kinetic sculpture? A kinetic sculpture is a sculpture that moves on purpose. Cool. So yeah. Uh, so if you can think of things spinning, of cranks or handles that you may grab and turn, um, all sorts of different things could happen. But yeah, I know this probably isn't what a kinetic sculpture is, and we'll edit this part out. But the only thing I, the first image that came to my mind <laughs> was of those um, air inflated, um, like floppy people that get used like advertised car dealers. <laughs> I'm like, I think that technically counts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it could count. Yeah, it's it's not a no. It's not a hard no. <laughs> I think most people. My mind goes more towards those. Um, my mind goes more towards those like Rube, Rube Goldberg things. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we thought about doing one of those two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we just couldn't pull it off, you know. Um, and we thought about for that particular project, we wanted to show sort of progress over time and something cyclical. Um, but we also wanted to make it available and relatable to parents at the school who generally did not have a lot of education, did not have a lot of money, nor would they care about some 30 page report and a PowerPoint, you know, like that just didn't make any sense. So, you know, we picked the sculpture format. Um, and after the, and after it was completed, uh, we actually put the sculpture in the front lobby of the school uh, where it became this thing that people would engage with and talk about and, and refer to. Um, and for me, sharing the data that way so that people were talking and engaging and making decisions and making plans based on the data is much better than um, some sort of typical report that will be seen once, read once, put on a shelf and forgotten about. Um, Andy, I'm curious about, um, pitfalls. Maybe that's, I don't know if that's too dramatic a word, but are, are there things that we should be aware of as we embark into this more creative type of evaluation? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when you engage a full person and you engage their emotional reality, all sorts of stuff can emerge. Uh, I have learned that, uh, especially if I facilitate a group of more than, say, 10 people, to have a second person there with me, because you never know when a question might elicit a, a very strong emotional response for someone, and they will need some care in that moment um, to sort of get through the meeting. Um, that That's happened on more than a few occasions. Um, and it's usually, it's usually not anything that has anything to do directly with the evaluation or the program that's happening. It's usually something going on in their own lives or something in the past. Um, the second thing I would say is that this kind of work, since it, it requires the whole self of the evaluator as well, um, it can be very exhausting. Um, it takes a lot of energy to work in this way, to uh, stay engaged with in this way. Uh, we've had to have conversations at Terra Luna and at Creative Evaluation about secondary trauma um, because it's, you know, when you are opening up your emotions in this way, um, you can leave yourself vulnerable to a lot of things. So making sure that you know, you as an evaluator have not just that you have self-care as sort of like something you plan to do, but that you have this, you have self-care actually built in and you have, you know, someone you're checking in with, um, appointments for self-care before you start the work, things like that. I think that's such a powerfully important reminder and thank you for, um, being very explicit about that um, because I think that is one of the things that Mm -hmm. I definitely have been caught off guard by and not thought about or prepared for ahead of time and have been learning uh, 
how important it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if that's also, again, one of those inhibiting factors um, where we might sometimes avoid this work because we don't feel prepared for the emotional side of it and how difficult that work can be and, and, and how skillful that work needs mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. Um, although I'm struck by that, you know, when we talk about things like evaluation being being healing work, I think that's one, one of the places where the healing comes from. If, if your work demands that you get better at hard feeling stuff, that's going to have a lot of benefits. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I don't know if you guys are parents, um, but I remember when my, when my first child was born, you know, we're in the hospital and they're taking care of us and there are nurses in and out and everything. And at one point, one of the nurses came to me and, and said, okay, now we need to make sure you've got your car seat in correctly. And so I had to bring around the car, show them the car seat, show them how it was buckled in and everything. They had to make sure I knew how to, you know, unbuckle it, put it in the car, take it out, and that whole thing. Then I went back up to the room and they said, okay, you guys are ready to go. And I was like, wait a minute. This is a human baby. You can't just you can't just give me a baby and let me walk out of here. I don't know what I'm doing, right? Like I know nothing. And they're like, yeah, good luck, goodbye. And you know, the truth is, none of us are ready. There, there is no, there is no magic moment where we are ready. You know, it is always a continuous process of learning and relearning and reflecting and trying again. Um, but if every evaluator waited until they're absolutely positively ready to do the evaluation, the programs would be over, the organizations would be disbanded, and the communities would be long gone. Like, we're never ready. And that just has to be okay. Mm. That reminds mm-hmm. me also of something I've learned um, from have, from being a performer is you're never not nervous right. before you start. No. Even if it's, um, you know, something you've done before, mm-hmm. even if you feel very comfortable and confident and, and rooted in what you're doing, the very fact that it's going to be new every time and yeah. you're going to be needing to adapt and roll with things. And just the fact that it's very public challenging, thrilling work. You're, you're never not going to be mm-hmm. nervous on some level. You're right, right. Yeah, and I think too, like from my perspective, I'm not acting, but in music, sometimes our conductor gets after us in terms of, you know, you're, you're getting you're getting in your own way. You're, you're overthinking. You're, you're kind of, you're, you're getting so stressed. You're, you're working yourself up around this maybe particular passage in the piece or, or whatever. And like, just don't get in your way with it. You know, that, yeah, embrace the nerves a little bit. No, it's it's gonna the way it unfolds is the way that it was meant to unfold, and yeah, it will turn out all right. Use it. Use the nervous energy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Optimal level of arousal. I think is yeah. uh, psychological. There we go. There you go. <laughs> there we there go. go. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, this is a little bit of a pivot, but there was something else I wanted to explore. Um, and I'm being a little opportunistic because at the time that we're recording this, it has also been um, on the AEA 365 blog. It has mm-hmm. been the week for a look at language. Yes. And there have been 
Um, but definitely go and, and look at all of the posts that have come out so far this week. There's been quite a lot um, of different evaluators asking us to look at the language we use, look at the words that we use and, and, and getting us to, to um, think more deeply on some of them. I, uh, I think we've had people talking about uh, looking at social betterment, looking at the word competency. Andy, you had a post where you asked us to uh, name whiteness in evaluation. Yes. Um, and, and one of the things I'm interested in, because um, al- I've also been thinking about um, the use of, of writing in the written word, um, and I'm also thinking about, I know uh, CES um, recently brought out a revised version of, of uh, our evaluation competencies, mm-hmm. and I was part of one of the groups that was commenting on a draft version of the revisions, and one of our comments was that the competencies really emphasized um, uh, written communication. Mm-hmm. And we pushed back and said that there's more forms of communication than written. And I, I just looked at the, the actual released revisions and, and they and now say written and visual. Okay. But I'm wondering also, and just this is me thinking about words and, and language and, and how we communicate. And like, I wonder if written and visual is, is that enough and um, yeah, I apologize. I've taken us on a bit of a journey with this question, but like I feel there's this, <laughs> this thing here about how we are thinking about how we're communicating as evaluators and what we're communicating and why we're communicating it. And I'm wondering if our imaginations are uh, limited in some way or if there's um, something else, another angle for us to be looking at this from. Yeah, I, I mean that's it's a question that uh, that I think about quite a bit, you know, and it, it brings me back to that question of who is this evaluation for, and what is it trying to accomplish, you know? If evaluation, it let me even step back from evaluation. If the organizations that sponsor evaluation, um, if the governments, if the private foundations, the corporations, are themselves rooted in a kind of whiteness, are themselves rooted in a kind of colonialism, then the evaluation that serves that organization is probably not serving other people very well. Um, I had a profound experience uh, back in February. I went to the Monterey Conference Uh, Indigenous Evaluation Conference in New Zealand. And at one, so half of this conference was in Maori, um, half was in English. And on the last day, they split the conference into Maori evaluators and white evaluators. Now, I'm African American, and there's one other African American evaluator there. And so we made our own group as neither Maori nor a colonizer. And we started reflecting on these ideas of, of exactly who, who we are working for when we evaluate. And we had some, some different ideas, but it, it essentially comes back to the idea that when we evaluate, we are evaluating for a reason. We're not neutral tools that um, see everything objectively. 
um, and that in fact we should question the idea of objectivity um, of the scientific method of any number of things as tools that reinforce a very white upper middle class well-educated view of the world and if evaluation is a tool to impose those values on other communities as it's been with the african-american community as it's been with indigenous communities all over the world um, then that's not something i want to participate in um, and so when we think about language when we think about communication sure written is important uh, for cultures that have written languages but not every culture does in fact almost half the languages in the world don't have a written component. Um, so if evaluation can't be used in those circumstances, I have to question the validity of evaluation. Um, you know, and in some other languages, things that are important, there is a written language, but things that are important don't get written down. Or they're represented in what we would call, uh, in a Western context, it would be represented visually or through art or through tattooing or through any number of things. Again, if evaluation can't get to the things that they value, if it can't understand what's important to them and talk to them in a way that they can understand and use and make decisions on, then evaluation isn't really worth doing. And so I am a, I, I, use what I call the arts. It's not called the arts in every, in every uh, culture, but I use these things because people tend to encode what's important to them in some form of art. Um, every human culture does this. In fact, there's never been a human culture that we know of that hasn't had art. That's how important it is to us. We've gotten along just fine for thousands of years without qualitative methods, without surveys, without statistics, without any number of things. But we can't do it without art. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the stuff that really matters, that tells us what we fear, tells us what is taboo in our culture, tells us what is special and important, all of these things. Um, and so that's why, for me, arts-based evaluation is in, is valid and important and meaningful. Well, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a long-winded answer to No, that was, that was absolutely beautiful. And it wasn't, it was almost more of a, a, a half-finished thought that I'm like, there's something there. Mm. I think one of the things I'm noticing and, and this conversation is really reinforcing it is, I think one of the things that struck me around the competencies is this sort of the description of written and visual communication like there's a need to specify mm -hmm. and I'm, there's part of me that's just like, what if we just talked about communicate? Like, you know, maybe mm -hmm. cause it's, I feel like one of the things we're getting around in this conversation is it's about, we have talked about this. We've talked about, it's not, you know, privileging one method over another. It's about knowing what method is appropriate to a given situation. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, and so it's not like, even when we talk about like, what, do, what does it mean to be, competent at writing or written communication does it mean you're choosing the right words or does it mean mm -hmm. that you have a deep understanding of the implications of the words that you choose right because mm -hmm. those are very different things extraordinarily uh 
I, when I was in Liberia, you know, I went there uh, with, you know, my training from uh, my university. I was teaching an English class. Um, I thought I was a pretty good writer and a pretty good uh, English teacher. And I had this experience that changed my life, actually. I had given out an essay assignment, and most of the essays were, you know, were not awesome. Uh, the students in my classes were mostly uh, either former refugees or former child soldiers or both um, due to the way the war had ended. A lot of former child soldiers wound up in my classes. Um, and so I had handed out this essay and this kid had written about his experiences during the war, one of them. And But the sentences were really poorly written. You know, it was lots of run-on sentences, comma splices, this whole big jumbled mess. So I gave him an F. And he came and talked to me after class and he asked, well, professor, like, why did I get an F? And I said, well, you've got a comma splice and you got this and you've got that. I cited all these grammar rules. But then in the end, I said, essentially, a sentence is a container of sorts that can hold one thought, one complete thought. And he looked at his essay and said, but professor, this is my complete thought. Mm. And I went back home and I thought about that. And I realized that, you know, if we think in language, which we seem to, most of us seem to do, and grammar is the rules of language, then grammar is also the rules of thought. And by imposing my grammar rules on him, I was not only telling him to write like me, I was telling him to think like me. And I was, in fact, telling him to reflect me in his narrative. So I had come into his country, asked him a question about the war he was in, but when it didn't match my narrative, I gave him an F. And we shouldn't be doing, like, that is so inappropriate. That is so wrong. Um, and it made me really question what I was doing there and what set of rules or what epistemology or whatever you want to call it, like, who was I actually serving by imposing these rules on another culture? Um, so that, I mean, that, I kid you not when I say that changed my life. I was a completely different writer after that a very different person. I started really thinking hard about what happens when I encounter other cultures and when Americans encounter other cultures, uh, when we encounter things that don't make sense to us or fit within our worldview. Um, and so a lot of my evaluation sort of asked my, asks in one way or another, am I imposing a set of rules in a place where they don't belong? Am I doing that by asking questions in a certain way? Like, say, I put out a phone survey. Does that require everybody have a phone? Does that require everybody have minutes on their phone? Does that require all of these other things? Um, you know, if I am asking to interview, is this the way people ask questions in this culture? If I'm doing youth-focused work, is it a youth-focused culture? Or should I be starting with the elders and asking them what they think and then taking it from there. Um, there are all sorts of things that we do as Americans that we think is 
just awesome. Clearly we're wrong if you look at our current political situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I've made it sort of a personal mission to try as best as I can not to impose my assumptions and preconditions and biases on everyone else when I'm doing these evaluations. Mm-hmm. And I will say that, that Canadians along with Americans are implicated in that. <laughs> and, uh, and it brings me back around to the comment you made when you, when you talked about how you first um, your, your early impressions of evaluation of it being about putting yeah. people in boxes, which mm. yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a way that we do evaluation that is about putting people in boxes. And what I'm, yeah. what I'm um, hearing in this conversation and also a lot of the people that we've talked with this year is talking about mm-hmm. a, a type of evaluation that's about creating, crafting the containers in which people can, can not to put people in the container, but where they can come and figure something out that works for them, or we can figure something out that works together. There's, there's a difference there between putting people in a box and right. creating a container for ourselves to do some work in together. Building the sandbox and the uh, playground and the kinetic sculpture and everything else. Yeah. You know, there's these structures that we think about, whether it's a sandbox or a novel or a survey or a research protocol or whatever it is, there are so many hidden ideas and assumptions about what should happen in those structures that even having the structure itself, no matter how well-intentioned you are, no matter how many safeguards you build in, the structure itself can work against true engagement, against change, against all sorts of things. So I've just learned to be really careful about, you know, what I propose to people, how I even, you know, down to the, like the way I dress, the way I carry myself in certain spaces, like all sorts of things to make sure that I am not imposing something that is either unwanted or counterproductive. I have just one last question. Um, We'll see if anything comes. Maybe sometimes my questions create other questions, but at the moment I have one last. Um, All right. (laughs) What has surprised you about working in arts-based evaluation? Hmm. What has surprised me about it? How much I like it, to be honest. Uh, this is not a, a career path I ever thought about or, or had even heard of uh, before I came up here and started working. Um, and, uh, you know, I think just the sort of the profound changes I've seen in people and organizations based on stuff that, you know, for me as a, as a working artist, I tend to think, oh, this isn't a big deal. Like we do this stuff all the time. But for people that don't normally engage like this, it's been a really profound experience. And I'm so, I'm so grateful that I could be part of it and grateful that I can, you know, use my skills and my experience to help them along the way. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, uh, Andy. This has been a fantastic conversation. We're so glad that you that you came on to to talk with us about arts and and creativity and and brought all of your experience. Um, is there anything that you would like to uh, share with our listeners and let them know about that they should keep an eye open for? Um, we have lots of different ideas and initiatives starting with a creative evaluation that's on creativeeval.com. Uh, so look us up on the internet. Uh, we'll be offering different sorts of experiences, online classes, things like that. I am also working on uh, the third edition of a Michael Quinn patent book called Creative Evaluation. Uh, the last edition came out in the mid eighties. So this is a pretty substantial rewrite. Um, so look for that eventually. We'll make an announcement when that is out. Terrific. Okay. Thank you so much. Sounds great. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Eval Cafe. Thank you to all our listeners. Check out the rest of our episodes on Pinecast, iTunes, or Google Play, or by going to our website, evalcafe.wordpress.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at evalcafe. And if you want to drop us a line, you can find us at evalcafe.podcast at gmail.com. Musical credits go to Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com for Poppers and Prosecco, our intro theme, and Dispersion Relation, our outro as well as to Tim at tabletopaudio.com for the lively cafe ambiance in our intro. Right, hit start record. There we go. Okay. We can also do an Aval Cafe like horror themed, maybe haunted USB ports. The podcast is coming Ooh. from inside the, the computer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the evaluators are already inside your house. <laughs> we were the we were the evaluators all along. Oh. Night of the Living Metrics. <laughs> oh God, that does sound horrible. <laughs> 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 Brian, did you specifically start that conversation to have something for the blooper track at the end of the episode? No, it was, it was still in mind. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes. Uh. <laughs>